If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on jewishcoffeehouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. Thanks for tuning in. If you would like to skip over the conversation around fundraising, wartime, politics, feel free to go straight till the end, about the last 10 minutes or so where we address Mordechai's work with addiction centers in the Jewish community. I hope you find this episode interesting and valuable. Please keep reaching out with suggestions and volunteering to share your story. And here we go. Welcome back to the Francisca Show. Today with us, we have Mordechai, a.k.a. Michael Milch. Thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I am excited to be talking to you today specifically about the topic we're going to talk about, not only because of what's happening now, which is awful, and we need more guidance and strategy at a time like this in regards to finances, but also in general, our communities are designed a lot to survive on fundraising. So this has been something I wanted to discuss before the war happened. But now that it did, Eli Nidov suggested that we bring this topic up. So here we are today. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your religious and professional background, so we know who we're talking to? Sure. I am a fifth-generation Pittsburgh Orthodox Jew. My children are sixth-generation Pittsburgh. We go back over 100 years. I am an addiction treatment and mental health professional or executive. I've been in the space for, for 12 years, and I have some experience in terms of community work, I'll work as a board member of my local federation here in Pittsburgh, uh, board observer for the Jewish Agency for Israel, um, and involvement over the last number of years with APAC, among other organizations. So I have some familiarity with giving and attempting to give the right way, which I think is a very, very important topic, especially right now. Can you tell us did you tell us what your background religiously is? When you say Pittsburgh, do you mean background religiously? Yeshivish, modern Orthodox, within the, with, combo. Right. So I was so I was in Nairisol for many many years in Baltimore, and I would say yeah, combo is probably a good way of putting it. I just I like to call myself Orthodox and not not get uh, too far in, into that conversation of what Orthodox means and what type of Orthodox. I have a Yeshiva background. Like I said, I learned in, in Nairisol for a number of years and went to Nairisol for a couple of years as well. I was in Kohl for a couple of years, 
and so very familiar with all the different types of Orthodox communities. And so I th- a, a mix of everything, I would say. Based on your experience, what have you seen unroll over the last few weeks? And just give us some background on what's happening, and then we could talk about maybe what should be happening or how can we be smarter going forward? So, so first, I'd, I would back up, if that's okay, prior to the last couple of weeks. I think within the from world, let's call it, we struggle at times. I know I have over the course of, let's call it the last decade, where to give tzedakah, when to give tzedakah, how to give tzedakah, what's appropriate or inappropriate in terms of, of how much to give. I found myself a number of years back having conversations with Rabbeim and mentors based on the number of tzedakah requests I was receiving. And that's just one person. But knowing from family and friends that it's similar, if not even crazier for them, the amount of links that we receive via social media, via WhatsApp, emails, texts, etc., for for shuls and kolim and yeshivas and the and the unfortunate almana um, or difficult situation at Sar that that Yisrael might be dealing with, it's constant, and it turns at times into a bombardment where we have our own focuses, our natural focuses of our community needs, no matter where we live, our shuls, our yeshivas, uh, etc. And so, how do we handle that? Whether you're able to give $100 a month to tzedakah or a million dollars a month to tzedakah, how do we handle the bombardment and just how flooded and inundated our inboxes are with requests? So what I've been, what I've been told by many who are much smarter and have guided me over the years is that we need to slow down. And that probably will be, this is my best guess, a theme that comes out of this, out of this conversation. We need to slow down, not respond immediately to everything, which is the tendency of our generation, definitely within, within the from world. I got a link. I got to respond in five seconds and punch in my credit card number and give as much as I can. And that's, that's, it's really amazing because Claudia Schultz gives more money today than it ever has. We're giving more stuck and doing more chesed. So it's an amazing thing. On the one hand, we don't really want to slow down. We want to continue to give and do. On the other hand, on a personal level, within our family structures, within our community structures, we're almost required to because it's impossible to fill, fill every need. So now, especially to answer your question or attempt to, now, especially when Kayashol needs us, when Eretzishol needs us, when there are so many needs and so many requests and so many links from a lot of organizations that perhaps many of us are not as familiar with, we are forced to take a step back and slow down and ask the questions. Not so much to vet. I would say most of them are probably very legitimate. And their real needs run by by serious organizations. Um, I've seen very few warnings from from high level organizations or high level people to to be careful about a certain link or a certain name of an organization over the last couple of weeks. There have been some, but for the most part, all of the tzedakah requests, the organizations, they're not new. They've been around for a long time, dealing with terror in a different way in Eretz Yisrael. Unfortunately, this this was magnified in, in, in a massively horrific way two weeks ago. But it does require us to take a step back and say, okay, where am I going to focus my efforts and my money in terms of helping Kali Israel in the best way? And I think there are many organizations that have been doing it and have proven to be doing it the right way and in an effective way for a long time. And so those are the ones that I personally turn to now, as opposed to um, answering the call from 100 or 200 or 1,000 different requests. But again, it means, it means slowing down and asking the questions. And there are people and organizations that we can turn to to ask those questions from. First of all, our Rabbanim uh, within the firm world are not new and, and unfamiliar 
to all of the, I would say, larger organizations in Eretz Israel and what those needs are and what they and what they do uh, for the people that they're serving. Today, though, there are there are a lot more organizations than there were five, ten years ago. And again, within our from world and Chutzlar, it's it is the Eretz Yisrael Sadaka world is a little bit different, and so it requires us to ask the questions, but at the same time to trust them. These are, for the most part, I would say, established organizations and Sadakas that have been doing amazing work for a very, very long time. When you say asking the questions, do you mean making sure it's a legitimate cause and it's a legitimate source? Or there yeah, I would questions? say more than that. Yes, yes. I think that's. I think that those are important questions to ask, first and foremost, especially if you've never heard of the organization or are really entirely unsure about what they do and, and who they're serving. But I think it's also about us asking personal shilas of, of those we ask our shilas to, where is my money best served today? Because there are so many needs. You know, I got a call from someone last week saying, can, can you give and can you help me fundraise for a certain tzedakah in Stay Roads? Stay Road obviously being one of those communities most, you know, hardest hit in the South near Gaza. And they've been through a barrage of attacks for as long as I can remember and going back decades and decades. I've visited Stay Road a number of times and you can, you can witness when it's not a time of war, the trauma that every single person in that community deals with. So there are unbelievable tzedakah organizations there. And this person called me to ask about a specific tzedakah, to which after a lengthy conversation, I said, you know, there are a number of tzedakahs there. This is also a very important tzedakah. I can't focus all of my energy on this tzedakah. I'll give what I can for this tzedakah and I move on to the next one. I'm again, one person. Everyone has to do what they feel is appropriate and everyone has what they're able to give and willing to give. But there are a lot of needs. When I say that there are thousands of tzedakahs that are out there in Eretzishol right now that are important and that are serving a multitude of people for things that are absolutely 110% needed, it's probably way, way, way more than that. And so that's amazing. This is what we do as a call, and we're very, very good at it. At the same time, for the sort of common person, for the normal person who makes a living and does okay and gives our tzedakah, there are questions that we have to ask of our, of our abonim and the people that we ask Shilohs from. In addition to what I've mentioned, also the questions of, you know, I have X amount that I can give. Should I be pivoting and taking some of those dollars that I would typically give within my own community, whether that's for me in Pittsburgh or it's for someone else in New York or Chicago or elsewhere, and giving a percentage of that to Eretz right now? And what percentage of, of it should be going to Eretz Should I be giving more than I typically give right now, even if it might you know, be a little bit difficult for me? Those are questions that are above my pay grade. And above most of our pay grades, that's when we turn typically to, to the ones that are a little bit smarter and can guide us in those areas. Okay, I'll... Chime in with two ideas we have around tzedakah, which is one, starting with your family or with your community. And number two is giving smaller amounts, but to more causes. And the idea with the smaller amounts is that you, you're just getting used to the idea of giving and you're giving more versus giving less causes, more money. I'm one uh, perspective, and there likely would be a number of different perspectives to and, and approaches to take to these two ideas. I can say for myself and for many that are close to me, family, friends, etc., the idea of giving less to many, many more tzedakahs is difficult. And it's mostly difficult for me personally because it never, it never ends. And it shouldn't end. We have a tremendous amount of needs with, with, within Kalei Yisrael. I'm not just focusing on these two weeks. 
in Eritrea. Beyond that, there's a lot of needs. And and if we respond to every single link and to every single tzedakah with $5 instead of sending 500 to a few tzedakahs, it can become overwhelming very, very quickly. If you are extremely disciplined and have it down to a science as to how much tzedakah you're giving, how many different tzedakahs you can give to within that dollar amount, then call it kavod. I think it's, I think it's an amazing idea. What I found for myself and for many that I've, that I've become close with throughout the call across the country, if not across the world, is that it's become very, very, very difficult to do that because we are a generation uh, for one that, that operates very, very quickly. We want to respond very quickly. We're not as disciplined necessarily, again, a conversation probably for another time, but not as disciplined necessarily in terms of budgeting every dollar down to a T. And so it's in some ways, again, I speak for myself uh, and for those that, that listen to me on a regular basis and that I'm close with, to find the two or three or four that we know are using the dollars in the most effective way possible, that we trust the people that are overseeing that money um, and stick with them. Again, it doesn't mean that I'll never respond to the occasional link or, or the occasional couple of links. We all do, and it's, and it's an amazing thing to do. But to focus most of our tzedakah in general to the organizations, the tzedakahs, the institutions um, that we feel most comfortable with. And I think also maybe, maybe specifically in this moment in time, where we're responding to a horror and to a massive need in Eretz Yisrael that we all feel very close to and want to do more for, perhaps right this minute, to give to more tzedakahs may feel more impactful, and maybe it is for the right person, but I would say in general, that can become very loose. And, and when you look back at the end of each month or quarterly or annually, depending on how you do it from a tzedakah perspective, to say I gave to 150 different charities and I gave a smaller amount to each one of them, May not, may not feel as great or as impactful is probably a better word to the average person than I focused my tzedakah and my giving to four or five or, or 10 or 11 places instead. And I really made a massive difference for those tzedakahs. So I think it depends on the person, uh, but I would, be, I would be careful. I speak, I speak to myself and for myself. I would be careful to ensure that you're doing it the right way. And at the same time, that those dollars, even if they're smaller amounts and you're giving to more places, that they're really making and having an impact in a significant way. In terms of, by the way, in terms of family and community and giving that way, one of the most amazing things that I've found over the last couple of weeks is that every single person you speak to is, is sort of a, let's call it a first connection to somebody, to somebody directly impacted in Eretz Yisrael in a, in a horrible way, but in an amazing way, in the sense of, Everybody knows somebody who unfortunately was murdered or kidnapped or injured or was a hero or is on the front lines or is serving, etc. And so all of them inevitably have tzedakahs related to their communities, to their units, to tzedakahs they were involved with before in terms of helping people. And so they're all reaching out. And again, it's, it's, this is one of the most special and amazing things about being a part of, of this incredible nation is the, the level of in such a large way in a time of need. And so it's amazing to first be able to give to the friends and family and, and the community asks. But what I've found is that there's so many different tzedakahs, again, to, to the last point, even just within that smaller network of family and friends. I, for one, have had dozens of requests from, let's call it, first connections, either family in Eretz Yisrael, friends in Eretz Yisrael, or one step removed where I know somebody who knows somebody. And so that can become overwhelming too. To have to respond to each one of them um, in terms of giving 
for most people is very, very difficult. And you don't want to feel um, that you have to respond to everyone and, and you're biting off more than you could chew. So again, I think it's about slowing down, analyzing the asks, analyzing the different sadakas and opportunities out there and trying to find the ones that can be most, not just most impactful, but also most meaningful for you as a person. So by doing this exercise where you have to start judging a cause and how important it is to your personal wallet today brings up the larger question, which I mentioned earlier, which is how our community is completely immersed in this cycle. That, that's how we are functioning as a community. Every shul that opens, every, every school, every initiative is based on fundraising as opposed to a business that decides to create a product or service and then finds the demand or the subscription base to cover the costs. That's not at all how we think or how we start anything, which I don't know if it's the appropriate time to bring it up. But once we're going with that analytical lens and thinking about where are we doing things, is there anything we can take into our everyday life thinking, how can we use this agency to actually get our dollars to do the most for us and for the communities around us. And, and the underlying question is, is this a healthy way? Is this a healthy model? Is this a long-term sustainable plan for our communities? So as, as long as Claudia continues to make unbelievable amounts of money and has the ability to give, it is, it is, in my opinion, sustainable. But there are also those, and again, I speak for myself and for what I've, from what I've experienced in the past. Again, not specifically focusing on the last two weeks, where we sometimes reach a point where we're a little bit burnt out, whether we're sitting in a board meeting of an organization and we feel like they're not thinking through those things. We're raising the money, the dollars in the sense to put up a building, but are we focused on how we're paying teachers what they deserve? Are we focused on how the costs are going to go up and how we're going to meet those expenses as time goes on? There are organizations that are exceptional and do think these things through and tend to slow the process down a little bit in doing so. But for the most part, as a claw, we move very, very fast and we're very good at putting up buildings and not necessarily tackling, okay, what are, what are we going to deal with five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What's the next generation going to have to deal with? Are they going to be able to do the same thing? So again, my first point, if we continue to make money and have the ability to give in the same way and 10, 20, 30 years from now as we do now, then it probably is sustainable to operate in a similar fashion. But if for whatever reason we're not doing as well, let's call it, or things slow down a little bit, it can have a massive impact on the bottom line of so many of these organizations. So I think I think it's crucial to slow down. But in terms of these two weeks, you know, it's interesting. I was sitting in a in a in, in my local federation's board meeting this morning and the CEO at the very end of the meeting. We were talking about allocating emergency dollars to Aristotle and where to where to send the dollars and how we're going to allocate, et cetera. And he brought up a point which he had mentioned in a previous meeting, which was, okay, we're we're gonna we're gonna front and advance all of this money now that we would otherwise wait a number of months to send, and we're gonna send all the emergency dollars that we've raised. My community, for one, and it's a smaller community in Pittsburgh, has raised five and a half million dollars in two weeks as an emer- as emergency dollars that will go to Aristotle, that will go to organizations like Atsala organizations like Mug and David Adom, the Jewish Agency for Israel, et cetera. Those will be dollars that are used on the ground to help people in need now. But at the same time, we have what we call a sister city in the north, in Carmiel, that Baruch Hashem right now doesn't, quote unquote, need or need as much. But if Chas Shalom something happens in the north on a, in a larger scale, 
there are going to be needs. So do we put money aside right now and say, we're going to wait a month and see where things are at, two months and see where things are at, six months and see where things are at. See, that's, that's at a, on a larger level in terms of millions of dollars for massive organizations and CEOs and executives that have to make those decisions. But on a personal level, do I give all my tzedakah money today to Eretz Yisrael that I would otherwise be giving over the course of the next six months? And do I designate it all here when there may be other needs uh, and other asks for sure in two months or in four months or in six months? I personally think about things. I have friends and family in Eretz Yisrael, a lot of friends and family in Eretz Yisrael, right? Who are likely going to be out of work for months, for months, Right? There's going to be massive needs in terms of just getting the economy back on track and making sure that people can pay their bills. We're sending money now, and it's extremely important and people should continue to do it. We're sending money now to sort of what we would call the front lines to help organizations like Atsala and Zaka, et cetera. That are, it's extremely important, and we have to, and we should continue to give and give more. But we also need to think about you know, what's going to be needed three months from now, six, from, six months from now, even a year from now. I have close friends that are tour guides in Eretz Israel. They're not going to be touring people for a long time. People are going to be scared to go because of what's happened and likely what is going to be continuing for a given period of time. Right? Those people are going to need to be able to put food on their table um, and pay their mortgages, et cetera. Right? And we want to be able to help them and the family that we have there in those times. And it, again, it requires, to my first point, slowing down just a little bit. We still should give. We should give as much as we can. We should go above and beyond. And we should ask the shallows about how much above and beyond means for us individually. But at the same time, we also need to think about the future. And at the same time, I would, I would come back to not forgetting about our communities at home. Eretz Yisrael is extremely important. We feel that connection. We sh- and again, we should give. But we also have to make sure we don't lose focus on, on the needs of the people in our communities, whether it's in Pittsburgh or Chicago or New York or beyond. And those tzedakahs and those organizations are also going to need, need our money and our time over the next year. And in many ways, I know even in terms of my smaller community here in Pittsburgh, we have a number of Israeli families and American families who have people directly impacted in Eretz Yisrael, who have sons and daughters, and in some cases, fathers that have left and picked up over the last two weeks since, since Yom defended to go back to Eretz Yisrael to fight. We have doctors that we've sent from doctors that are now on the front lines because of the amount of cases in the hospitals, in the emergency rooms, in the surgical wards, et cetera, that Aristotle just doesn't have enough doctors on their own for this amount of, uh, of people that need help. And so those families back home for me here in Pittsburgh, and this is just a small community, it's times 10, times 100 in other communities, right? Those families need our encouragement. They need, they need in some cases, our tzedakah. We need them, you know, we need to make meals for them different types of chesed opportunities that are there. And so I think it's about just slowing down a little bit. It doesn't matter whether someone, a family is giving $100 a month to tzedakah or $1,000 a month to tzedakah, just taking a couple steps back and thinking about the global Klal Yisrael need, starting with Eretz Yisrael, obviously, and starting with our communities, and then deciding sometimes with the heats of, of people that are smarter and bigger than us uh, about what is most appropriate for us. Let's move on to politics. And I know you're involved with APAC. Everybody's favorite topic. Something I am not an expert in, but I'm learning so much about in the last few weeks. There has been a certain Jewish unity that has happened over the last few weeks. And we know living in the States and in Israel, you have two Jews, 10 opinions. So has Jewish politics shifted given the circumstances? 
I'm, I'm one person. I happen to be the person that, that is speaking with you, so I'll answer your question. But others may have different perspectives on this. Others who are much more tied in and involved with organizations like APAC and others, the OU, the Aguda, people that are working, not just people at the top, but the people that are working around the clock always, but especially in these two weeks, to reach out to elected officials on a local level, a state level, a federal level, especially at the state and federal level because of their involvement in in foreign politics and in foreign relations, et cetera. It's absolutely changed in the last two weeks, just in terms of overall general conversation. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a moment. But I will also say that those that are involved in it and those that are involved in it a whole lot more than me, it's a full-time job. It's about engagement all the time. The reason why organizations like APAC are around is for moments like this. It's to ensure that Congress and the White House understand that there is a need, a great need for our people and Eretz Yisrael to be protected and to be able to fight the fight that is necessary, unfortunately, at this time. Without the support of the White House, without the support of Congress here in America, it is nearly impossible for, for Israel, for the IDF to win this war long, t- long term, not specifically this war against Hamas this minute, but the war against terror and those that hate us in the surrounding countries and beyond. And so it's changed in terms of, I think, within our community, within the, let's call it the general from definitely yeshivish community, we tend to lean a little bit more to the right, if not a lot more to the right. Whereas in the other parts of the Jewish community, they tend, again, not always, but tend to lean a little bit more to the left. Right now, what we've seen, Baruch Hashem, and this is a credit, again, to people that are, that are doing this full-time well before these two weeks, We've seen bipartisan, unwavering support for Eretz Yisrael across the board in Congress at, a, at state levels and then in Congress and then in the White House. And I've, I've sort of taken the approach and, and those that follow me on social media and that follow me and see my WhatsApp statuses, et cetera, taken the approach of, I, I for one, am never going to agree, to agree with any of these politicians on the right or the left on everything. But the one thing that I hope I can agree with them on at all times is the unwavering support for Israel and for what Israel needs. And so the work of APAC and other organizations is to ensure that the people in these elected positions understand what Eretz Yisrael is all about, what the people in Israel are all about, what the government in Israel is all about, albeit far from perfect, and so that their support when it's needed is there. And we've seen, thank God, until now, I would call it unwavering support outside of a couple extreme exceptions on, on mostly the left, unwavering support. And it's a bracha, but at the same time, it comes with tremendous ishtadlis, which is ongoing during these two weeks. I can tell you as someone who is not a board member or directly involved with APAC, but fairly fairly involved behind the scenes, as well as with OU and, and other organizations, it's a 24-6 operation to, to be involved and engaged and in conversation with every state senator, every congressman, the White House when it's appropriate with the right people, etc. And that's not just to stay engaged. It's because this is a fluid and ongoing situation there to show. And as we're all, we, we are all concerned about, it's nice that the support is there now. What's going to be when it's a week from now, a month from now, two months from now, as the, as the number of, of those that are killed in, in Gaza goes up? What, what's, when's it going to change and how, it's, how is it going to change? And we've already seen the shift a little bit in terms of media across the world starting to shift. So how do we ensure that it's there? It goes back to educating these folks, especially at a federal level in terms of Congress and beyond on what Eric Saul is all about. And I think APAC, for one, does an amazing job with that, 
but I think it's it's next level also. And that next level is probably the most important thing. And it's something that I've talked about quite a bit over the last two weeks. It's not a car satov. Now, this shouldn't just be the case now. We should be showing gratitude and writing and calling our elected officials as much as possible all the time when we feel like they're saying the right things. And we should also be reaching out when they're saying the wrong things, which will happen and has happened. But right now, when the White House, when the president comes out and says something and we're like, wow, I wasn't expecting him to say that, whether we were or weren't expecting him to say that from wherever we, we are aligned politically, if he says something powerful that is in favor of and in support of the state of Israel at this time, we should be showing our cars at Tov. There have been plenty of times, I don't think we need a history lesson from me, but there have been plenty of times in our history where we didn't have that support, not just in America, but beyond. So to have that support is an, is an absolute bracha. And we have to show that gratitude. The reason why we have to show that gratitude is not just because it's the right thing to do, but also because most of these elected officials, they need to know. They need to know. And they really enjoy hearing it. <laughs> Side point, right? But most of them are in the positions that they're in because they have egos, because they are very strong personalities. Reaching out to them and saying, thank you for your vote on this. Thank you for saying that. I've had conversations with a half a dozen individuals who are running for positions of leadership in the next six months, who are not elected officials yet, based on the statements that they've made, not just in my hometown, but beyond over the last two weeks. Why? Number one, because I need them to know that, it, that, that it's extremely meaningful, that it touches us almost to a point of, of true, real, raw emotion. I know some of the hardest right-wing conservatives in our community, when I say our community, I mean within Claudia Shaw, that broke down in tears listening to the president over the last two weeks. That literally broke down in tears. These are not small individuals. These are, these are big individuals. I never thought they would hear, hear those words from any president, let alone this president. And so I think Akar Satov is, is all, again, it's always important, but it's extremely meaningful in these moments. And let's not forget, there are unfortunately those that are not in support of Israel, that are not in support of our Congress and our White House supporting Israel. And they're writing and calling perhaps probably also and so it's important for them to hear our voices. You know, APAC, the OU, a good other organizations have, have sent out emails, have posted on social media with links where you can hit the button and just put in your information. We'll immediately send it out to your senators, your congressmen. I would urge not only to do that, but to change some of the wording, to make it your own. It's that much more meaningful. I can tell you we have Rabunim here in Pittsburgh, whose children and other children's in the, children in the community have written letters to our congressmen, to our senators, to our state senators, to the, to the president, to the vice president, et cetera. Those words from children are meaningful. We've had Holocaust survivors do the same thing. There's different ways of doing this. There's different ways of giving back. There's different ways of supporting the claw that isn't just about giving money or posting on social media. We can do things behind the scene, even as a, you know, a normal person who goes to work and just tries to pay their bills and goes to Minion. Us normal people can, can make a massive, massive difference. We don't know who's reading it or the impact that it will have on them in that moment. And uh, unfortunately, we need their support. And so far, Baruch Hashem, they've given it, and it should only continue, but it requires a different level of Hakar Satov, I think, than we've ever given before. Yeah, and I would extend that to people in the business sector, as well as the online sector, influencers, people who are putting their, who, who are meddling in politics now, and are potentially opening themselves up to backlash and losing support. Right. I think one of the things we've done very poorly, I'm not just talking about from Jews now, I'm talking about beyond Jewish people. I think as a country living here in America over the last probably decade or so, 
we are very poor at having conversations with people that disagree with us politically. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle we're on. If someone disagrees about what I'm voting for or on a specific issue, I can't talk to them about, about politics. This isn't about discussing politics. This is actually quite simple in terms of right and wrong, human interests versus you know, the other interests. There are organizations that put out a tremendous amount of content in terms of being able to have these conversations, having conversations with those that don't think like us, that might have different experiences. Again, I'm not just talking about within the firm community, but it can happen even within our firm community, but definitely beyond. To your point, you know, yes, for CEOs and executives of, 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 big, of tech companies and big companies, it's, it's certainly true. But I think even for the, just the common employee within those companies or within any company who, who sits alongside Goyim who might think a little bit differently, um, being able to have conversations in a polite way, in a way where we're looking to educate and also listen. Listening is a very important part of a conversation. And I don't know that, again, we're very quick. We're very quick to do amazing things like Itzadaka. And to my point of slowing down, I think it also applies here. Being willing to listen to the other side, even if it is completely ridiculous and, and full of nonsense, just showing that we're listening engages the person differently versus shouting at them and shooting them down. And, I, and there are organizations like Stand With Us, like APAC, amongst others, that provide content to be able to have these conversations in a meaningful way. And I think now more than ever, as we focus on Eretz Yisrael and the support of Eretz Yisrael and the politics of it, unfortunately, it's important to be able to have conversations with people that may, be, may not see eye to eye with us on just about anything politically, but this may be something that we can come to agree on or may already agree on. So I think those conversations are extremely important. I know for one, I sit with people on almost a daily basis within my community who don't dive into the same shul as me, may not go to shul at all, and think very differently than I do politically on just about every issue that I'm aligned with on Eretz Yisrael. Um, I'm a part of what's called the Young Leadership Cabinet of the Jewish Federations of North America. I sit in meetings and briefings with, with people, let's call it within my age group, from across the country, from places like Alabama, Louisiana, Mississippi, and beyond, who probably don't agree with me on just about anything, period. But when it comes to, to Israel, they are completely aligned. These are Jewish people, not unaffiliated. And so it's, it's a willingness to have conversations. And you'll realize very quickly that we have a larger community than just our inner circle or our shul or our school, et cetera. And I think it's also important back, back a little bit to the, to the politics of it, especially with what we're hearing and just the abhorrence and, and awful things coming off of college campuses today for our politicians to hear our side of it to know that we are appalled by it, disgusted by it, et cetera. Many of those politicians have longstanding relationships with the people in charge of those organizations slash institutions and can be influential, especially when we, when we you know, hold their feet to the fire and, and, and expect that of them. And so uh, I, I think it's, it's important more than ever to show that Hakar Satov and beyond that Hakar Satov to have the conversations. Okay, I'll go a little deeper here. And I'll use terms like woke. And here we're seeing it a lot of the, the woke side perspective, which is victim mentality, fighting racism. Are the Jewish woke people being woken up out of it, seeing we're the double standard against Israel? Israelis are white, Palestinians are not white, and automatically the Palestinians have to be the good guys here, no matter what they do, and they're the victims. At some level, I'm, I'm sure, yes. 
my experience over the last two weeks is that there are a number of people that I know personally that have maybe they didn't lean all the way to the left on some of these issues or, or conversations, but have the needle has definitely moved in the last two weeks, seeing a double standard. I will also add that Israel is not just full of white people. Israel is is a very diverse country of Ethiopian Jews, of many different types of Jews of all shapes, sizes, and colors. And that's an important that's an important piece. I was on a on a mission last week on what we called a civil rights mission to Alabama and Georgia. And I had a conversation with someone who's close with who's who's very, very close with someone from the LGBTQT community who was completely supporting free Palestine and the Gaza people, the Palestinians, etc. And so I made a I think pretty easy argument of it's almost ironic that Israel is the only country in the Middle East where a person that that associates with that community would even be allowed to live. Forget voicing their opinion on anything. If in any of these other countries, including Gaza, someone came out as gay, they would be executed. <laughs> right? So this isn't a conversation. It's, it's not just a double standard. It's just a very bizarre conversation in many circumstances of them just not being educated on, number one, what's really going on on the ground, what the Middle East is all about, what Israel is all about, what Gaza may be all about, etc. And so it's about taking a step back and having conversations in a meaningful way. And this person told me that I, you know, I had to, you know, pull all stops and bring out all the information and show them proof of it from online because um, they simply were not aware that Israel allows anybody to live in their country as long as they're peaceful. Right? It, they just they weren't aware of it. The narrative that they had heard, the media that they watched, the social media influencers or or accounts that they follow were not speaking that reality. They were speaking a completely different reality. I, for one, am not one who believes that every single person that is protesting against Israel and pro-Palestine on college campuses and beyond are all actually anti-Israel and pro-Palestine. I think most, most of them, if not almost all of them, are extremely uneducated. Sure, there are some that are extremists and, and bad people. But for the most, many of them are just following the wrong accounts and have a totally different view of, of their reality than is actual reality. And so it starts with being willing to confront both online and at times if, if, if we have those, those opportunities in person, people and organizations that are simply not, they're watching and listening to things that are completely false. And it, these aren't easy conversations to have, by the way. That's why there are organizations that focus all of their energy and dollars on tackling these issues. Uh, we've seen it in the last two weeks in terms of the media without necessarily naming names. There are countless, countless media outlets that jump to conclusions in terms of certain things that have happened in Gaza and in this conflict over the last two weeks. And s- some of them immediately, ba- immediately backtrack. Some of them slowly backtrack. Some of them haven't backtracked. There's a reason why those things are happening. It's not because the truth came out. It's not because Israel decided to stand up and say, no, this didn't happen. It happened a different way. Right? It's because there are hundreds, if not thousands, of individuals on the ground that work for organizations like APAC and the Aguda and, other, and, and countless others right, that are calling their contacts at these media outlets and demanding them to retract what they said or put in their papers. Right? And that's astonished at a completely different level. That's people, you know, it, it's the things that I've seen, me, one person has seen behind the scenes. I could go on telling, I could tell actual stories for days um, just on, on the last two weeks, on calls that were made, on briefings that were had, on minds that were changed 
based on strong-minded individuals standing up for what's right. And by the way, they're not all Jews. They're not all Jews. Some of the most impactful calls that I personally have received over the last two weeks have been from non-Jews, people that I've worked with, colleagues in my industry, and well beyond that, just people from my community or people that I've come across who understand the truth, are appalled by what has taken place, and want to stand by not just Israel, want to stand by what's right. And so it's about educating people. It's about being a willingness to have conversations. And again, with everything, just like tzedakah and the conversation we had before, it's about figuring out how much time in the day do I have to navigate these circles to try and make a difference. And I'm talking about the average person, someone who's not involved with APAC or with a different organization, just wants to make a difference. What call do I make? What email do I send? And figuring out and taking a moment to figure out what, what are the best steps to actually make, to make a significant difference. And I will tell you, because I know this to be true, there are normal folks who are making a massive difference today in terms of how the world sees what's happening on, you know, in the Middle East, as well as making a massive difference within, within our communities and how we're perceived as a, hopefully a light amongst, amongst the other nations. Thank you. Before we move on, if there are two, three bullet points you can throw out that people can use as language talking points, as ways to educate and have these conversations. I don't, I don't know so much that I'm going to give you specific language as much as to say this. I am a firm believer and I've, I've debated people on whether this is the right approach or not. And I, I think I'm right. So I'm going to share it. I think everybody needs to be them. Each person needs to be their unique self and they can make a difference in their way. And what I mean by that is I may speak the language different than the next person. I may have different bullet points that I want to use in a conversation with someone than you may have. That's okay. There are platforms, yes, I can share some of those. Specifically, I would say the ones that have been most impactful for me and that I lean on and that I follow on a daily basis, if not now, multiple times a day to help me through gathering news as well as the talking points like Stand With Us, which is just an absolutely unbelievable organization that is fighting for the average person to know the truth about Israel and and what's actually happening there today. But this is an organization that's that's been around for quite some time and has been doing amazing work even before these two weeks. As well as, uh, yes, we've mentioned APAC a number of times. APAC is a great resource to go to and to have conversations with those folks about the most impactful way to have these difficult types of conversations. But you need to trust yourself. I think I've seen so many people from a Tzedakah perspective, from an Askanas perspective, from a just a humanitarian conversation perspective, if that was English, go outside their comfort zone and be willing to do things that they've never done before. Give more money than they've ever given before. I solicited somebody who is not religious, is a Jewish person that I, I felt close enough with, solicited this person for an emergency, you know, Camp, campaign fundraiser for Eretz Yisrael in the last two weeks, someone who gives likely tens of thousands of dollars to Eretz Yisrael on an annual basis for different causes. I solicited and asked him for a million dollars. Not because I thought that I was going to get it necessarily, but because I wanted to show him through the ass that was perhaps so outrageous that there's a crucial, crucial need today, different than ever before. Right? There are many people that after the Holocaust regretted not getting involved from a distance, whether from America or other places, some of whom tried and couldn't, some of whom never tried and regretted it forever. Right? This is our opportunity in, in Gullis, in, in Chutzlar, it's to step up and to be there 
And, and it, yeah, oftentimes, if not most of the time, it means stepping outside our comfort zones and having conversations or soliciting people or going into our own you know, bank account and shelling out more than perhaps we would be comfortable under a normal set of circumstances. And we should ask Shilas if that's appropriate in the given circumstance for sure. But I, I, think, I think it's about trusting ourselves. Most of us are, are at least pretty informed, pretty well connected. If we're not, again, there are resources to help us with those things. If anybody wants coaching, my number is easily accessible online. Anybody who wants can reach out. I mean that. Shoot me a text, find me on social media, give me a call, shoot me an email, whatever. I will help you through a given conversation to have with somebody to the best of my ability or guide you in the right direction. But I I think it's about being willing to step outside our comfort zones and do things we've never done before. This is an unprecedented time. It will come to a close at some point. Israel will will defeat Hamas. People will get back to the normal way of living. We will bolster our security along the southern border and the northern border in ways we never have before. We'll probably at some point lose some of the support we've been gaining from around the world and in America for what we're doing in Eretz Israel. It's par for the course. This is our history. This is what we do. But this is an opportunity like most of us in our lifetime have never had before in terms of Eretz Israel. And it's an opportunity not just for this moment in time in Eretz Israel, but once it's all cleaned up and we figure it out and we move forward, to be involved differently than when we were before this happened. You know, the Rabbanim are getting up and talking about how our tefillah should be different in Shul right now than it was before it happened. What's our tefillah going to look like after this ends? Right? It's the same thing for our ability to do claw work and to make a difference in those areas that we've discussed. Now's the opportunity to show up and to step up and then hopefully to continue doing a lot of it or most of it when the need isn't as great. Is there hope for the hostages, like for all the rallies being held around the world to and all of the work that's being done with local politicians do we actually have the power to get them back do our rallies have the power so well I've reaching out to senators and congressmen yeah I, I don't know that that mordechai milch's email to a state senator or a u.s senator is going to initiate the release of of a, of a hostage in gaza in fact i know it won't but i think that the the collective effort of Kal Yisrael to bombard. When I say bombard, I mean it. Not a couple here and a couple there. I mean hundreds, if not thousands of emails and calls to elected officials daily. I know people personally that have reached out (laughs) to all their family members and friends to get them to reach out to the same individuals and elected officials in Congress and in the White House. Right? Does it make a difference? I hope so. Heshtadlis is an important thing. Listen, it's up, it's up to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in terms of how all of this is going to play out, and we all know that. Our Heshtadlis is doing what we have the ability to do today. For some of us, it's reaching deep and giving $1,000 when we used to give a little bit less. For some of us, it's reaching deep and giving $100 or a million dollars, whatever the number is. right? And for some of us, it's making a phone call or writing an email or asking my child to do it. For some of us, it's showing up to a rally. I was at a rally um, on Thursday night, and they called it a vigil. That was attended by uh, just a, a wide array of people from Jewish to Christian to Muslim and beyond. And there were elected officials from the governor's office, from state Senate, from Congress, and so on. I'm going to be at a, I'm going to be at a, at a, at a gathering tomorrow night here in Pittsburgh with, with uh, the vice president's husband. Um, do these things matter? They matter because they're hearing our voices. They're loud. They're passionate. They're emotional. I know people that have stepped up and have supported campaigns for, for hopefully soon to be elected officials or already elected officials that are running again, that have voiced their, their support of Eretz Yisrael 
and have stepped up campaign contributions to those campaigns. Do they know it? They know it. They know because they see it. They see the numbers going up from certain communities. They see the names on the list. They, they can compare the numbers to the last, to the last campaign and see where, where the numbers are changing. I, for one, have supported a number of, a number of campaigns over the last two weeks that has really nothing to do with what's happening in Eritrea Soil this minute. But I want that continued support, unwavering continued support. And they're going to see it and they're going to have to acknowledge it. And if they don't acknowledge it, I reach out and I say, hey, this is what happened. And some of these conversations are not the easiest conversations to have. But I think, I think, listen, in terms of knowing whether the hostages are going to be let out, we, we all dive in every day constantly that that, that that is the case, that they should come home as unharmed as possible and live fruitful lives, every single one of them. The people that need to be doing their establishments from the Americans to the Israelis and beyond are doing it. I've, I've sat on White House briefings, on APAC briefings, on Federation briefings, on OU briefings with the Naftali Bennett's of the world, with White House representatives, with Congress people, with generals in the IDF. Every measure that can be taken is being taken and has been taken since, since, since this happened. I'm confident in that. The American support, the dollars that, the dollars that are going as well as the, the supplies that are necessary for our people, for our, for our fighters on the front lines is already arriving and will continue to arrive. But again, us common folk, it's about, yeah, it's about these things. To, to answer your question and come full circle, yeah, I do think it matters. What the outcome is going to be. Do we know what the outcome is going to be? No. I don't know that anyone knows what the outcome is going to be, but I am confident that those that need to be doing what they can to have every single hostage released are doing that. I can't have you on and not address your expertise in the addiction world, specifically in the Jewish world. Can you share some of your experience and knowledge around this issue for all of the people who are just here to listen to this part of the episode because they're so done with listening to anything about politics right. and war? Yeah, so I've, I've been in the addiction treatment and mental health treatment space for about 12 years. Well, I've operated in the space for most of those 12 years, and I've, I've owned and operated in the space for about six. Addiction treatment and addiction in general in, the, in, in our community, in the from community, has changed drastically in the 12 years that I've been in this space. From the, the stigma changing, the way people talk about it, to the amount of resources that are out there, to the cost of treatment, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on the circumstance. There are some unbelievable organizations and individuals that do tireless work for those struggling with these diseases. At the same time, we are nowhere near where we need to be as a claw to tackle what this is, which is, which is a disease that is never killing many and also impacting in a massively horrific way so many families that struggle with you know, members of their family that are, that are addicted to whatever. So we need to do more. It's a sort of the theme that we've spoken about in this conversation but focusing on, on, on what I do professionally, I, I, think, I think it's about bringing awareness to our communities, about being willing to have conversations. And beyond that, it's about challenging the status quo. What I mean by that is I am so blessed to have very close relationships with people within our community that are doing everything they can on a daily basis. And when I say daily, I mean most days it's probably dozens of cases to help to help our children, our loved ones that are struggling with addiction for as little money as possible. I'm sending those people to the best treatment centers in the country, if not the world, for as little money as possible. It's about fundraising. It's about awareness. And there are a number of really good people doing it, but there aren't enough. And when I say that, I mean it. 
there are so many addiction treatment professionals in this country. There are so many treatment centers. Some of them do an amazing job. Some of them don't do an amazing job. How do we find the ones that are amazing? How do we connect with those? It requires more and more people working in Oscanus work, working behind the scenes to connect our loved ones to those. I get, you know, it's, it has slowed down a little bit these last couple of weeks, really since Yomtif, because of what's taking place there to show where people's focus has gone. It has not changed the number of people that need help. I get dozens of calls a month from Rabbanim, from principals, from spouses, from parents, across the spectrum of Judaism, across the spectrum of community, from out-of-town communities to massive in-town communities. I have these where I get calls from different, let's call them professionals, in some cases, Rabbanim, whatever, high-level people within communities calling about the same person that don't know that the other person called. Some of that's amazing. Some of it lacks a level of organization that's probably that's probably necessary and needs to be worked on. And some of it is just lacking. There are so many cases out there that don't have the people standing up for them and speaking up for them. And so we need to connect with the organizations that are doing it the right way. It's probably a much, much larger conversation for another time. But what I've seen is that Kalyasol is much more aware of this issue. They are much more wary of this issue. They are louder about this issue. And that is an amazing an extremely important thing. When I started in this industry and tried to have conversations with Rabbanim and principals and Rosh Hashivas, et cetera, it, for the most part, there are exceptions, for the most part, fell on deaf ears. And I was personally coached and mentored by Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Torsky, who, who, who most people have heard of, especially in our community, who lived in Pittsburgh for, very, for a very long time and our families were very close and had the privilege of asking him a lot of my you know, business-related, personal-related shyless as it pertained to addiction treatment and how I was going about it as an executive. I mean, he gave me a lot of guidance on how to do that. And a lot of it starts with our community leaders, the principals and the Rosh Hashivas and the Rabbanim and other, and other people in charge of our community, so to speak, stepping up again at times out of their comfort zone, being willing to challenge the status quo, ask the questions, why is it costing so much money to send our child to, to, to treatment for 30 days? How do we figure out a way to not spend $30,000 or $50,000 um, to do that? How do I know that this is the best treatment option for my child or for my spouse or for my loved one? These are important things to ask. These are questions that weren't asked for a very long time, that Baruch Hashem over the last number of years are asked more and more. And I think as a call, we're doing, we're doing amazing things. I can speak for, for those that I work very closely with in terms of these issues within our, within our general community that we're tirelessly doing amazing work to help as many people as possible. And uh, we need more people like that to step up and do those things, not just the therapists and the professionals, but you know, the lay people and the people that care about, about our communities. Well, we definitely have a theme here. And I want to thank you on behalf of everyone, the audience and Klaalisrael for all the amazing work you do and you have been doing before crisis happens and as things come up. So thank you. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening until the end. Please take care of yourself. Don't forget about the people around you. Be nicer, kinder, and try to reach out to one person or organization that has taken a stance to support Israel and say thanks. See you next time.
When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.